0: In your Bibles this evening, we would turn your attention to Micah chapter 4. You can find that on page 1073 in your Pew Bible. We'll read the chapter in its entirety, and then this evening we'll be focusing especially upon verses 11 through 13 uh, as the text for our sermon. We read together then from the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, beginning at Micah 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem He shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But every one shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies." And in the words of our text, Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Thus far for this evening, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the history of the church, there was a man by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius was a man who stood for the orthodox understanding, especially of the person of Jesus Christ. Athanasius, it was said, stood against the entire world, and the entire world was against Athanasius. Fast forward, uh, there was another man in the history of the church uh, by the name of John Knox. And of John Knox, it was said that one man with God is always a majority. Uh, John Knox stood against uh, the Queen in Scotland. He stood firmly committed to the authority of the Word of God concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just reference these two persons from the history of the Christian church by way of introduction to be an encouragement to you and to myself this evening, because the world does rage. The world raged against Athanasius. The world raged against John Knox. The world will rage against you and I. And I want to identify that reality, especially for the young people of this congregation. Uh, The world, and again, by that we do not mean uh, the sky and the trees and the rivers, uh, but the ungodly lot of humanity out there in the world, they rage against Christ. And they rage against the Christian, and they rage against Christian truth. And in many ways, that can bring about the sentiment that my wife's grandfather often would share. He would say, it's trouble from the womb to the tomb. And on one hand, he's right. Facing a world that rages against us, it is trouble from the womb to the tomb. But our hearts ought not to fear. For as we've sung one little word shall foul the powers of Satan, the powers of darkness, the powers of death. And that one little word is of course the anointed of the Lord, who even now sits at the right hand of the Father and rules over all things by his omnipotence and by his wise counsel. Now, to be sure, the nations in their raging are blind with their fury. They do not acknowledge the anointing of the Lord, nor do they comprehend the ways of the Lord. And that's part of what Micah is reminding the faithful remnant in Israel. Because the faithful remnant are also experiencing the raging of the surrounding nations, and they're experiencing difficult providential circumstances as they come upon the eve of an exile. But Micah brings a word encouraging the faithful remnant of Israel, that there would be a victory in Zion for Zion. And that's our theme this evening, the Lord promises a victory in Zion. We'll notice, first of all, the setting for this promise, and then secondly, the the contents of this promise, and then thirdly, the realization of this promise. So the Lord speaks through Micah, Uh, And by extension, through his word, speaks also to us this evening, promising that there will be a victory in Zion. We'll notice the setting, the contents, and the realization. Uh, First of all, in regards to the setting, uh, to give ourselves a proper understanding of the context, we must look at the setting in Micah's day, at least in some review and in some brevity. Uh, We're referring especially to the life of the southern two tribes of Israel. Uh, There has been a division between the ten northern tribes, and the ten northern tribes, uh, by and large, at this point in the history, uh, have been exiled, been destroyed, been conquered. And so imagine that already would have created a, a certain sense of fear within the two southern tribes their big brother, you might say, Uh, the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, that, yes, sunk into apostasy a bit quicker, but nevertheless were their kinsmen. They had been carried off, and they had been annihilated by the foreign enemies. And while the southern two tribes are enjoying a brief measure of economic prosperity, nevertheless, they are weak when it comes to military might. Uh, They have no real defenses within themselves other than an uh, an attempt at an alliance. Uh, Alliances that ultimately will prove futile. And so the nations around them are are beginning to threaten war, are beginning, we might say, to uh, beat the war drums. And all of this creates uh, a certain unsettled fear. Uh, within the faithful remnant. And then add to it, uh, Micah comes and and Micah, along with his other contemporaries, faithful prophets, uh, they come speaking a message of impending doom and of impending destruction and impending disaster. To Babylon you will go. To Babylon? That would be like telling uh, a faithful member of Ukraine, to Russia you will go. You will go right into the jaws of your enemy, the enemy that seeks to destroy you. And then to compound it uh, even greater, prophets such as Micah speak to the southern tribes and say, yes, to Babylon you will go because of your apostasy and because of your sin. Now certainly the faithful were still faithful, but there is a corporate sense of guilt. And so there is a corporate exile that is pending. And so this is the setting in which this promise comes. And so the faithful remnant, to a certain extent, have shaking hearts. They're wondering what's going on. They might even be taking the words of the psalmist and asking themselves, has God forgotten to be kind? What of His promises? What of His plans? What of His purposes? Will it all come to naught? Is it all characterized by futility? But then we also need to make the connection to our contemporary setting. Now, there are many things that are different from our day and Micah's day, but there are many things that are similar. We find ourselves as those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We find ourselves as those who live by that faith, embracing the covenant promises of our Lord, promises first made to Adam and to Abraham and to David. And so you might say, spiritually speaking, as Paul says in the epistle to the Galatians, we are the sons of Abraham. And we profess, and hopefully our profession is characterized also by a consistency in our life. We are those who profess to be faithful remnants, Uh, while sadly there is much apostasy that characterizes uh, the broadly speaking evangelical church in the Western world. uh, We profess, hopefully with humility, but also with a note of conviction that we hold on to the old paths of the Gospels of Grace. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only atoning, sacrificial Savior. And we seek to express lives of thankfulness and gratitude uh, with newness of life. And yet we also uh, are confronted uh, with many an enemy and many uh, a dangerous circumstance. And we might look on the horizon uh, and, and see what is going on in the church, and it might cause our hearts to begin to question and begin to fear. We might also, and we've heard many, many people over the years express these sentiments. Well, what about my children, and what will they have to live, and what will the world be like for my grandchildren? It seems, it seems like everything is going from bad to worse very, very rapidly. And all of this, while it has a note of truth to it, can also produce this spirit within the church that we become filled with anxieties, fears, Perplexities, asking ourselves, and maybe saying to one another, has God forgotten to be kind? What of his promises? What of his purposes? God had promised that he would exalt us along with his Son, and yet look at us. Rather insignificant according to the world's standards. And so something of the setting As we transition, you can think of a similar expression that came from the mouth of Elijah. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. You might think of John the Baptist. In Luke 7, verse 19, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent him to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? You see, these words of this text and the words of the sermon tonight are especially, not exclusively, but especially addressed to anyone who has a soul, a spirit, a heart that is heavy and weighed down, filled with fears, doubts, and questions. Has God forgotten to be kind? And the answer is absolutely not. God has not forgotten to be kind. And so he comes through this word and he echoes the promise, identifying what we look at in our second point, the contents. First of all, the contents of this promise of a victory in Zion focus on a divine perspective on the setting. We, we see reality from our own perspective. You see life and I see life from our perspective, and that perspective is rather limited. Even if we live a a number of years, even if we live a a full number of years, still our perspective uh, on events is very, very, very limited. But what happens even in the exercise of faith is our limited perspective becomes the limit of our reality. And so what God graciously does through His Word is lifts us up momentarily to grant us a broader perspective, a deeper perspective. And through this, the Lord comes and He reminds His people of two basic truths. The first is that of the world's ignorance. Now here again, when we speak world, we mean humanity as it lives in rebellion against God. And I say this with humility, but I say this with absolute confidence, and young people note this well. There are many, many, many experts out there in the world who speak many, many, many pompous things, but they are ignorant. They are ignorant of God, of the promises of God, and of the purposes of God. If you look back at our text, this is exactly what the Lord says through the words of Micah. Verse 11 begins, Many nations have gathered against you who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. They have no regard for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have no regard for the Christian. They have no regard for Christian truth. Verse 12, uh, there is this contrast, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. At any time uh, you hear the ungodly speak uh, pompous words predicting the doom uh, of God Himself, uh, perhaps some of you who are older remember the message that came out of Europe, out of the liberal universities and seminaries, God is dead. When you, th- when you hear something like that, you can go to verse 12, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. And so they acquire all of their education and all of their learning, but they never gain wisdom they do not know the thoughts of the lord the world the nations the cultures especially those that appear to rise up in great might and in great pomp and great show the lord cuts them down with the word of his mouth and with a damning indictment he says that they are completely ignorant they are completely ignorant of divine purposes and of divine plans. And that's why you you can take the the secular expert who has all the academia uh, that could possibly be accomplished, and if you were to ask him, what is the great metanarrative of life? What is the great purpose of all things? What is the great end of all things? They have no idea. And that's part of the reason why you're seeing uh, the increase and anxieties, and and fears, and suicides. Because, indeed, this whole idea that nothing really matters is gradually being inculcated within our culture. But in contrast, that the Christian church says, ah, we do know what it is all about. It's all about the glory of our God, and it's all about the glory of the risen Christ. And it's all about the glorification in due time through God's purposes and plans of the glorification of the Christian church. And just remind yourself of this. Anytime you read any news report, anytime some talking hat on the television news goes on and on and on. Anytime you pick up the newspaper, if you still read the print edition, uh, and you hear anything that's contrary to the Word of God, remind yourself, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand His counsel. The nations do not know what the Lord is about. In my own private devotional readings, I've made my way once again through the Exodus. And you have Pharaoh, the mighty man of the world. All of the empire of the nations are basically his. And you have Moses. And of course, there's that back and forth exchange where Moses comes and speaks the word of the Lord, saying, let my people go, and internally... Pharaoh must have just laughed. Me, the leader of Egypt, listen to you. Basically the equivalent of a vagabond. But he did not know the purposes of the Lord. And then Israel goes out after the ten plagues culminate in the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh perhaps by way of the advice of his military advisors, pursues them. And in Pharaoh's mind as he goes out with all of his mighty war machine, chariots and horses and swordsmen, pursuing a people who are nothing more uh, than recently freed slaves, who don't have a sword among them, who don't have a horse among them, who don't have any equipment to engage in military battle among them. Pharaoh must have thought to himself, now I will have my vindication. But he did not know the thoughts of the Lord. And I imagine it was with blind fury that he drove his chariot and the host of his chariots into the Red Sea, speaking pompous words of arrogance, not knowing the purposes of the Lord that in that day the Lord would exalt himself in the deliverance of Israel and the annihilation of Egypt. There is this reminder of the Lord's counsel. What is the Lord's counsel? Uh, Ephesians is helpful uh, in chapter 2, but also Psalm 33 is helpful. Verses 10 through 12 says, "...the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect." The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And so you notice by way of parallelism, the counsel, the counsel of the Lord is just simply the plans that the Lord has, the plans that the Lord doesn't make up as history goes along, some type of open theism, banish the thought from our minds, but the plans that God has from all of eternity, from before time. The plans of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are in perfect unity, that have passed through God's infinite knowledge and His perfect wisdom. Those plans, plans that include uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the accomplishment of redemption. The plans that include uh, your existence, my existence, our existence, the plans that include absolutely every event that happens in the course of human history, but the plan that has a certain goal, a certain end. And that end is the exaltation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And never forget, now I understand that, you know, this isn't a a popular question or a common question. It's not like you're going to be walking uh, on the square and people are going to stop and say, you know, what is the end goal of all of life? Sadly, we don't think that way too much anymore, but you and I ought to be able to answer that question in a heartbeat. The glorification of Christ. That's the end goal of everything, that's the center target of God's will. And the beautiful truth is that connected to the glorification of Christ is also the glorification of the Christian church. So at the very heart center of God's purpose is to glorify Himself through His Son and to glorify those who believe in the Son. You see, that's why the psalmist and that's why preaching Begs, commands, calls, beseeches, kiss the Son lest He be angry, and you perish in His wrath. Kiss the Son with belief, with faith, with repentance. Because if you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, then everything works, as we say, in our baptism form, and as we say in various other of our confessional documents, then everything works works for our good, then God averts all evil or turns it to our profit or to our benefit. And that's why, and I understand our common language, I use it myself, but if you think about it, the Christian never has a bad day. Because everything that happens in the life of the Christian serves for their eventual exaltation in connection with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The other way around, The unbeliever, the unbeliever never has a good day. Because as long as they remain impenitent and unbelieving, every moment carries them closer to eternal destruction, and every moment brings them into a hardness of heart unless they repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord comes and He says, in the setting of impending doom and disaster as the nations uh, rattle their military swords and uh, lick their chops, you might say, over the destruction of the people of God, remember they do not know the purposes of the Lord. And then the Lord goes on and He reveals something of His action. If you look there uh, in verse 13, uh, there's you shells and their I wills. It begins with, Something that Israelists do, arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. And so the Lord speaks about a divine gathering of the nations, uh, using the common agricultural analogy of bringing in the sheaves of harvest. You know, farm equipment has, of course, developed over the years. Uh, Some of you, you can remember planting corn with horses and with wires. Uh, Now, you go down the field 10 miles an hour, 24 rows at a time. You go back even further to the days of Israel. You didn't drive a combine out into the field with grain carts and semi-trailers. You went out there and brought the sheaves into the common threshing floor. And you laid them there at the common threshing floor. And a variety of means. Maybe uh, with wooden rods, with uh, stones in them on the end. You you beat the grain out. Maybe uh, an ox would go around in a circle. And the hooves of the ox would, would grind out the grain. But the idea here is that the Lord will gather the nations to His threshing floor of His righteous judgment. And understanding, this is not out of some personal vindication, uh, that we seek our own honor to be vindicated, uh, but the idea, the truth, the reality that the nations will face the Lord, that puts our suffering into proper perspective. Well, sure, the nations rage against us, but their rage will be dealt with by the Lord when he gathers them into the threshing floor. Uh, now, I know that this perhaps is not the most popular teaching within our day, uh, but I don't simply ask if it's popular. We ask, of course, is this biblical? And Jesus Christ, in a, what could be considered a, a parallel passage, Matthew 25, verse 31, uh, he echoes what we find here in, in Micah 4, verse 13, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. And remember, that is, again, what we're saying is the end goal of human history of all history, when the Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ, comes in His glory, in the open display of His divine power, and in the accomplishment of His redemptive work, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, imagine the scene. Jesus Christ reappears in indescribable glory and majesty surrounded by the company of angels. Now in the scriptural narratives, whenever a human being is confronted with an angel, the result almost always is they fall down. They're taken aback. They're taken greatly aback. And now here you also have the very person of Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him all the nations will be gathered before him. Every single member of the human race will be gathered in the presence of the holy glory of the Son of Man. And he will separate them one from another. There should be something of a holy fear when we read those words. Not that... We fear being cast away. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a sense of awe. All the nations gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Scripture is clear, and so we must also be clear this evening. That day will come. And every member of the human race will be gathered before the throne of the glorious King of Kings. But then an eternal division will take place. Two categories of human beings. Those who are blessed and those who are cursed. Those who are the friends of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are the enemies of God, by impenitence of heart. Two eternal destinies. Heaven, hell. On the basis of the authority of the Word of God, the nations will be conquered. Psalm 2 also speaks about this reality. Uh, A familiar psalm, uh, but we read a section of it Uh, 4 through 9, where there is this talk of the nations raging. And we often hear the nations rage, and we often become somewhat discouraged or maybe upset, unsettled. What does Christ do when the nations rage? Verse 4, "...he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath." and distress them in his deep displeasure, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Christ will break the ungodly nations with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, when do these things take place? Uh, That introduces us into our third point, the realization of the promise. Ultimately, and we mentioned in the past that prophetical oracles often have a partial fulfillment and then a, maybe a, a more full fulfillment, but then the ultimate fulfillment. And the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, again, if we use Scripture to interpret Scripture, is found in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and perhaps this is most clearly referenced by reading a passage from the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 20, uh, verses 8. They are willingly deceived, but they are deceived nevertheless. And in their deception... Gog and Magog, representing uh, the ungodly nations, they gathered themselves to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And if we stop reading there, it would seem that the odds are stacked uh, to the amount of an impossibility for the church of God. The nations, Gog and Magog, with all of their advancements, with all of their power, with all of their might, with all of their hostility as they breathe out threats against everything that is Christian. And if you have perceptive ears and you listen to the culture, you can hear the growing intensification of the threats against the Christian church. But at the end of the age, these threats will become intensified so that symbolically, the nations gather themselves together and they think that they are about to annihilate the people of God. But then... The inspired pen of John continues, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And so you go back to the prophecy that Micah gives. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. And time doesn't allow us to expound uh, with much more detail. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2 uh, and 3 mentions uh, that we also as Christians will have part in judging the world and even judging the angels. And the judgment in large part will be the judgment that our faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ brings in condemning the world. But you can think of the Israelites again uh, in the The antecedent of this event, as they went out, their faith in God judged the unbelief of Egypt. The fact, if you remember the Passover, the fact that the fathers of Israel in an act of faith went out with the sacrificial blood of the scapegoat and spread it over the doorpost, that spoke volumes of condemnation upon the Egyptians who did not do that. And you can think of the Exodus as the households of Israel came out and they walked underneath that blood. As they were safe and secure in the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they looked upon the nation of Egypt with the welling of the destruction that they were experiencing. And then the wealth, the wealth of the nations became the wealth of the people of God and the poor went out rich. Now, I don't know exactly how this all works out, but I do know that the cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord's. And that all that is, is the Lord's. And I know, based upon the authority of Scripture, that the Christian is the son and the daughter of the Lord. And our Heavenly Father, by His grace and by His mercy, has laid up a wonderful inheritance for all of those who love Him. Now, perhaps we don't see it, at least not with our eye. Now, oftentimes, and indeed, we acknowledge the providential blessings of the Lord in providing for all of our institutions, our churches, and our schools, but sometimes you step back and it seems like the world has an endless supply of funds to advance their causes. And the Christian church Labors on. But don't forget the wealth is ours. Because the wealth is Christ. And that is the end focus of all human history. Because that is the plan of God, the purpose of God. So, what motivated Athanasius to stand against the world? Love for God? Commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ? A confidence assurance? What motivated John Knox to live such a life that it was said, one man with God, a majority? The same thing that motivates all of the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ to look at things from a different perspective, the perspective that the Lord gives us through His prophetic Word, lifting us up And maybe that's what tonight is. Maybe the Lord is graciously coming to us and you're looking ahead at your week and your month and your year and maybe you're seeing obstacles, difficulties, temptations, trials, persecutions and you're asking yourself, how can I go on? Don't forget. Don't forget the promises of God. Don't forget the plans of the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Plans to give you hope and to give you a future, an eternal future, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, maybe it's true trouble from the womb to the tomb. But thanks be to God that the story doesn't stop at the tomb. And that even now we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for speaking to us. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would comfort our often unsettled hearts. And There are times that we look around and we cry out to you, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Give us a heavenly perspective. Give us your perspective. And may we know with the absolute certainty of faith that your purposes and your counsel will stand, even though the nations rage against you and against Christ, and therefore also against us. May we know that all of our enemies, all of your enemies will be completely subdued on the glorious day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that that day may come quickly when the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. For Jesus' sake, amen.